We do have our evening Bible session at 5 o'clock. We're going through a little series on introduction of the Bible, which will take this fall and spring. Works you through all 66 books. And I think when we got through last week, uh, everybody had the key words memorized for the first 39 books, didn't you? Well, you were close anyway, so we'll take a few minutes and go over that. But one of the concepts is to get you familiar with Scripture, how it all works and lays out, and then how it comes together in its individual pieces. So I hope you take advantage of that. We do have it online for those who want to watch it. But we would rather see your beautiful face here in person, okay? I want to read something to you this morning and then get into our message. And let me just share, this is one of the hardest messages to preach because it's about betrayal. And we know one of the greatest stories of betrayal is about Jesus and Judas, a man who Jesus chose to be one of his twelve who ended up turning on him and led to his death, foreordained by God. And anyone that's been through betrayal understands what that pain is like. But at the end of this message, let me say this up front, there is hope, okay? So what I'm going to do at the end, and I'm going to have to rush through some of this, but I'm going to t tell you how a counselor would share with you on how to get through betrayal. Now really that should be one whole message, but it's going to be at the end of the day, and the bottom line is, there is hope. For those of you who lived during the 1980s, and I would be one of those, but I was unfamiliar with this circumstance, there is a man by the name of Aldrich Ames. Anybody remember that name? Aldrich Ames was a CIA agent who served for over 30 years in the Central Intelligence Agency, he had a very interesting marriage. He was on his second marriage, I believe, if I'm correct. And his wife really enjoyed spending money. Ames enjoyed drinking. Long story short, he had access to intelligence of American spies in Russia. And he began to sell the names of those spies to the KGB and the Russian government. The Russian government would meet with him for lunch he would secretly take the names, he would meet, he would pass the name on to them, they would pay him thousands and thousands of dollars. Some people estimate that Ames received over $4 million over a 10-year period by leaking American secrets to the Russian government. Ames was interviewed, and by the way, to my knowledge and my research, he's still in federal prison today in his 80s, and he's sentenced there until death. But Ames would release top secrets of America that uh, counterterrorism and other things they were going to be involved in. He would tip the Russians off. Many people died. Many were tortured. Many were enslaved. They were just brutally treated. Only one person on the list escaped with his life. I listened to interviews of both this week, and it was just unbelievable that inside the CIA was a mole who leaked out information that not only was detrimental to the United States, but also cost people their lives, and Ames, in the most calloused way, said, that's just how it was. Now, when you get to that point in your life, you know you're in big trouble when your personal satisfaction is more important than the life of another person. I'm going to read a passage to you this morning that came to my mind yesterday while I was chopping wood. This is not my text, 
but this came to my mind, so I want to share it with you. It's in 1 Timothy chapter 5. Don't turn there. You can read it later. But it's in verse 22. This is Paul's instruction to Timothy. He says, Do not be hasty in the laying on of hands, nor take part in the sins of others. Keep yourself pure. Skipping a verse. The sins of some men are conspicuous. In other words, they stand out. It doesn't take much to figure out some people are evil. He, he writes later, though, the sins of some are conspicuous, going before them to judgment, but, but the sins of others appear later. In other words, given enough time, given enough test, eventually character is going to demonstrate and show itself. And in the case of Judas, this is exactly what happened. Now, this morning, I'm going to have you turn to several passages, and we're going to take off rolling here, okay? Because there's a lot of material to cover. But I want you to remember what loyalty and disloyalty means. Loyalty is allegiance to a person, cause, or institution through good times and bad. That means when you're uh, not disappointed, you're there. When you are disappointed, you're there. It has nothing to do with not confronting someone, not speaking truth. This is not blind loyalty. We talked about this in the first sermon. But this is the concept that you're going to stick through something in good times and bad. And if it's dealing with a person, then you're there for them. Much like a marriage vow, by the way. You know, when you get married, what do you say? For better or worse? For richer or poorer? In poverty and in health, in sickness and in, you know, you, you get the point. You're making a vow that you're going to be there, not only when it's to your benefit, but you're there for the other person. So this morning, as we think about this man named Judas Iscariot, uh, what, who is this guy? I'm going to turn to John chapter 13. I put this on the screen this morning so you could look at it. I will not make you turn past Matthew, Mark, Luke and John this morning, but you are going to have to flip some, okay? John chapter 13, this is where Jesus is in the upper room right before he's, his night of the betrayal and the crucifixion. Listen to what the text says. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, talking about his crucifixion, his hour, to depart out of this world of the Father, Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, What I am doing you do not understand now, but afterward you will understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. 
Now we should all stop here and ask, well, if Jesus didn't wash feet, then why didn't any of the twelve offer to get up and get a towel and a bowl? And the answer is, is because they didn't want to serve one another. And as a matter of fact, if you read in one of the other Gospels, they sat around and looked at each other as if to argue who was the greatest. They were arguing about who was the greatest among them and had forgot to serve one another. And now Jesus is doing the customary principle of taking your coat and hanging it on a rack. That would be like washing feet. Jesus answered, If I do not wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Then Lord, not only my feet and my hands and my head, wash the whole thing. Just If that's the case, if you washing me is going to make me a part of you, then give me a bath. And Jesus said to him, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but he is completely clean. Now let me help you here. If you've believed in Jesus for eternal life and you have salvation, you are bathed. But you know what happens even as a believer? You walk through the world and you live life. What happens? You get your feet dirty. It's a way of saying you have a way of getting out of fellowship and you need to be cleansed. And by the way, folks, listen to me. Christians do sin. It's your nature. Not your new nature, but you are as much of a sinner as you are a saint. And we need to be cleansed. We need our feet washed. We need to constantly be reminded of fellowship. Now in your mind, you should write down 1 John 1, 9. He's talking to Christians here. As a Christian, what do you do when you sin? Okay, John answers that because he's talking about how to have fellowship. He says, if we Christians confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So Jesus here is given an illustration that someone who has had a bath still needs to have their Christian sin washed, forgiven, taken away so that not they can get back in relationship. You don't have to hop back in the bathtub. You just have to have your feet washed off. You're already a believer. Okay? He says here, You are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him, and that was why he said, Not all of you are clean. In other words, of the twelve that he washed their feet, he knew that one of them was not a believer. Eleven were, one was not. We'll go back to that. When he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, Do you understand what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. And if I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. Now remember that, Christian. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done to you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. Now let me be practical for a minute. What does this look like? When we go to the back and we have a fellowship dinner or we do whatever, 
a, a, a Christian who has this concept in mind, let me tell you what they do. They pick up their trash, they pick up the one who's sitting beside them's trash, and they beat everyone working in the kitchen to a rag to go back out and clean the table up and sweep up the floor. They don't wait on other people to serve them. They get involved and they go the extra mile to serve someone else. They are, they are servants. And the reason they are servants is because this is exactly what Jesus would have done. He wouldn't be crouched over in a corner going, hey, bring me some more tea. Uh, there's not enough beans in that bowl there. Get, get some more beans in there. Clean this place up. No, he would be the one who was actually doing it. When he saw the trash can getting full, he would not wait for the, the lady that's washing the dishes to have to come out and stomp on the garbage can. That person's going to go get that trash and they're going to take it out and put another bag in it. I mean, this is the practical nature of Christian servanthood. If you know these things, I'm, I'm telling you this so that you can be blessed this morning. You do want a blessing, don't you? Well, listen to what Jesus said. If you know these things, and you do them, by the way, blessed are you if you do them. The greatest blessing in the Christian life comes as we serve other people. It's not when you're served, it's when you serve other people. Okay, that's sermon number five. All right. Notice what Jesus says. I am not speaking of all of you. I know who I have chosen. Okay, I know all 12 of you. And guess what? I chose all 12 of you. I know who I've chosen. But listen now. But the scripture will be fulfilled. He who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Now, by the way, that is back in Psalm chapter 41, verse 9. David is writing that psalm when he is betrayed by his chief counselor, another Aldrich Ames. His name was Ahithophel. Ahithophel helped David's son Absalom figure out a strategy to dethrone his father. And David wrote this psalm. It had a historical context. And David was talking about Ahithophel. Jesus here takes that scripture and applies that to himself. Some people think this has the idea of double fulfillment. Some people think it was just a prophecy. We'll get into this on Sunday night. There is such thing in hermeneutics called implication and application of hermeneutical principles. We'll talk about that later. The bottom line is, Jesus here says that just like David was betrayed, it was said that the Son of Man would be betrayed. So don't let any of this catch the other 11 by surprise. One of you is a defector. That's what he's saying. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe, can I insert here, that I am the omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful, unchanging Lord Jesus Christ true God of God. So when Judas defects and betrays me, I don't want you stumbling because he was a traitor. I knew it, and I knew it from the very beginning, and I know exactly what he's going to do. You put your eyes on me and not on the Judases. And a lot of Christians need to hear that today. We get too much focus on people, don't we? And when people fail, somehow or another, we think God has failed. 
That is a very low view of God. God knows it all. Now, let me go on now. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe that I am he. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever receives the one that I send receives me. And whoever receives me receives the one who sent me. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit. Don't think betrayal didn't bother him. And he testified, truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, notice this text, uncertain of whom he spoke. I want you to imagine for three years, these 12 guys banded together like brothers. They went on crusades, ministry efforts. They were doing all kinds of work together. And Judas had so mixed himself in with the other 11 that they did not even know who the defector would be. And they began to ask each other. One of his disciples who Jesus loved was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. This would be John who wrote this. So Simon Peter motioned to him, Come over here. Ask Jesus who he was speaking. So the disciple, John, the writer of this passage, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? Who's going to betray you of us twelve? I mean, we know each other. Jesus answered, It is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. Now, by the way, during this time, they were all reclining around a table, leaning against each other. In one of the other Gospels, they begin to whisper to each other and go, Is it I? Is it I, Lord? Is it me? They had no clue. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, son of Simon Iscariot. Now apparently, Judas was somewhere around the table. Now here's the question. Did Jesus lean across the table and hand it to Judas? Did he pass it around to the twelve and it got to Judas? I mean, these are questions we don't really know. But what John specifies here is that he handed it to Judas and Satan entered him. Notice that after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered him. The only time in Scripture that we know that Satan actually indwells an individual. Remember what I told you? Satan is not omnipresent. He can't be everywhere at once. But let me assure you of one thing. He was in the upper room that night. And before they went to the upper room, go back in one of the other Gospels, Satan had put it into the heart of Judas to betray him. In the upper room, Satan actually indwells this man. Satan is a spirit. He doesn't have a body, by the way. You can't see a physical manifestation of Satan. That's why a lot of people deny him. He's not red with a pointy tail and horns and a pitchfork. He is not king of hell, by the way. That's the most ridiculous thing ever. Satan will be the one who suffers the worst in the lake of fire. He will not reign over hell. That's God. Satan will be the most tormented being in the lake of fire. But in this instance, he, as a spirit being and limited to a location, entered into Judas Iscariot. And Jesus said to him, What you are going to do, do quickly. 
Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Notice how discreet Jesus was. What you're going to do, do quickly. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, by the way, he was the treasurer, he was the one who kept the savings for all of the twelve to fund their mission trip, because Judas had the money bag, they thought Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out. And then John adds, and it was night. Now throughout the Gospel of John, that little phrase, and it was night, or it was darkness, has like two intended meanings. One, it was literally dark outside. And the second, it was dark inside. Judas was a dark human being. Now as we begin to think about issues like this, how do you... Take all of this material and boil it down. Let me, I'm going to do it in three ways here. I'm going to talk to you, first of all, about Judas's calling. So what I want you to do is turn over to Luke very quick, Luke chapter 6. It's one book back from John. I'm not going to put it on the screen. You're going to have to turn in your Bible. I want to hear them iPhone. No, don't look at your iPhone because you'll look at Facebook. Turn those pages, Luke chapter 6. Let's look at the call of the twelve. Interesting, interesting here if you read this carefully. I'm in Luke 6, verse 12, right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night, he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve. Now, you want to know why Jesus prayed all night? I'm going to give my opinion here. Father, this is terrible. I'm going to have to choose 12 men to be around me, and one of them is a devil. And I'm going to have to walk three years of my life with 11 men, fishermen, all these guys, and one of them is going to betray me at the very end. But this is your will, not mine. You're, you are calling me to be in the midst of a betrayer. And I'm going to have to endure this all the way to the cross. Now, can you imagine what this is like? Imagine Hosea and Gomer, the Old Testament story where the man is told to go marry a prostitute. And he goes and marries her knowing that she's going to betray him. And yet he's told to go get her again and again and again because it's a picture of God's love for the nation of Israel. Betrayal. Okay, go on. So he called his disciples and chose from them twelve who he named apostles. A disciple is a follower. An apostle is a sent one. One who is sent. So now he lists the name. Simon who he named Peter. By the way, he's always named first in the list, isn't he? Why? Because Peter was a natural-born leader who was very ambitious and always stuck his foot in his mouth. He, he was the one who Jesus said, on your confession, I will build my church. And he's the one who turned around and said, Lord, you're not going to do that. And Jesus had to turn around and say, get behind me, Satan. Apparently, Satan was after him too. And if you read the Gospels, Jesus told his disciples 
Satan has desired to sift. You ready for this? This is the Greek text. All of y'all. He has desired to sift all of y'all like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith would not fail. He only got one, by the way. And he got him because he had never believed. Simon, Peter, Andrew, his brother, James and John, they were brothers, by the way, called the sons of thunder. Why are they called the sons of thunder? Jesus went into Samaria, a place that was half Jew, half Assyrian, and they didn't want to welcome them, and they stepped back and said, call down thunder and kill them all, God. Kill them all and let God sort them out. That's what, that's what they said. And he said, calm down. Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, he worked for the IRS. Did you know that? He was a tax collector. Worked for the Romans. And Simon, uh, Simon who was called the Zealot. By the way, here's an interesting contrast. Simon the Zealot. What was a Zealot? A Zealot would have been a far right-wing, country-loving fanatic. They would hate anyone who worked for the government. Now think about this. So Jesus here calls an IRS agent, Matthew, who's working for the government, and he calls Simon a zealot, a right-wing, far-right fundamentalist who hates everybody in the government and everything else. He calls them to be his 12. Interesting study, by the way. Okay, I don't have time for that. Hopefully you'll study it on your own. And Judas, the son of James... We had Judas squared on here, by the way. Judas, the son of James. And now notice the text. And Judas Iscariot, who would betray him, who became a traitor. Every time Judas Iscariot's name is mentioned, it's always stated he was the one who would betray Jesus. Now, catch this. Are y'all with me this morning? There's 12 disciples. 11 of them came from up north in Galilee. Judas is also called from an area which most people believe, going back in the book of Joshua, came from right above Moab. Now, are you ready? The only southerner out of the twelve was a traitor. Sorry. Sorry, all you southern people. But the northern turned to be faithful, and the southern, Judas, was a defector. Interesting. Interesting. Now, as we think about this, Jesus, Jesus prayerfully chooses the twelve, knowing one of them was a betrayer. He prayerfully chooses his apprentices, those who are going to follow him out of his disciples, and he prayerfully chooses his adversary. He chose Judas Iscariot who would betray him. Now I want you to hold Luke, go back over to John chapter 6, okay? All them pages are wrestling again. John chapter 6, and I'm going to start reading in verse 60, and I'm going to go, okay? When many of his disciples heard it, he told them they would have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. He's preaching a sermon here, saying, you're going to have to believe in me. I'm your hope of eternal life. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, 
Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. Now, notice carefully. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. Now that's another interesting conversation. Verse 66, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Now, as you think about this, and if you go back through some of the Gospels, Jesus actually sent these men out on missions. Okay, these twelve went out and serve together. I'm going to Matthew chapter 10 very quickly, and I'm going to read what they did, okay? And I'll touch on this in the next screen, but I want you to turn to it here. The bottom line is, he called, I'm in chapter 10 verse 1 of Matthew, he called to him his 12 disciples and gave them authority over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal every disease and every affliction. Question, was Judas one of the twelve who was given authority to cast out demons and heal people? Please say yes. Okay, yes he was. The names of the twelve apostles are, in case you were wondering, and you can go down through that list, just go down to verse 4, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. Judas was a miracle worker. Now, I'm going to flip back to Matthew chapter 7. You don't have to turn there if you don't want to. But I want to help you maybe understand this verse in its context and what he's talking about. Because a lot of Christians are scared to death when they read this verse. Scared to death. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Now, what was the will of the Father in heaven? To believe on Jesus Christ for eternal life. Judas didn't believe on Jesus for eternal life. Now, notice what Jesus says in this sermon. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. So rest assured, if you have believed on Jesus and you're trusting in Jesus for your eternal life, that is a moment decision, not a lifetime of works. Please hear me. You are born again in a moment. 
you become a disciple through a lifetime of works. Yes, we should look at our life. Yes, we should evaluate. But, you know, if you're like me, the closer I look at my heart, the more scared I am of myself. I don't look at myself. I look at my Savior and, and get on my knees and thank Him that by His grace He wanted to save such an unworthy wretch and clothe me in His righteousness and then pray that God would allow me to be the servant that He wants me to be. And when I fail and get my feet dirty, I go back and get washed, not bathed, cleansed for fellowship, abide in Him. Okay? I just wanted to share that with you this morning. That's His calling. Now look at Judas' ministry. He was empowered to perform miracles and healing. He was entrusted as a keeper of the money bag in in John chapter 12, you can turn over there real quick because John gives an interesting comment. We read John 13 this morning where Jesus told Judas something they thought that he was supposed to go out and give to the poor or buy something for the fellowship lunch. But they didn't know what he had said. But John adds an interesting comment here in chapter 12 verse 6 as he writes about Judas and the bag. He says here, and he said this, uh, he was fussing because Jesus had allowed this woman to pour ointment on his feet, and Judas said, this should have been sold and given to the poor. John adds, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put in it. See, hindsight's always twenty-twenty. When they went back and ran the numbers... And, and did the audit on the money bag, they discovered Judas was a thief. He would skim it off the top, by the way, or dig it out of the bottom. Greed, the desire for more, ate him alive. And he was never suspected of treachery by his associates. You can turn to that passage in John chapter 14. I'm, I'm not going to read it, but just take note of it. But the bottom line is, after Jesus told them that Judas, some, one of them would betray them, they had this conversation, is it I? Is it I? Am I the one Lord? They were very concerned. They couldn't tell that this man was an imposter. This is his ministry. And now we're going to look at his betrayal. Okay? <clears throat> Judas, as we know from John chapter 6, early on in Jesus' ministry, he says, I have chosen you twelve, and one of you is a devil. And the text goes on to say, because he had not believed. It's hard to believe that you could be that close with someone, be empowered to do miracles and healing, and yet you would never... And, and see him, by the way, Judas even saw Jesus raise Lazarus from the dead and, and not, chose not to believe. The hardness of the human heart. You see, it's not evidence that causes a person not to believe. Catch this. It's the desire of the human heart. You know, when Jeremiah recorded the words from God that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. I mean, God was given a commentary on humanity. 
And then he adds in the next verse, who can know it? And thankfully he says, I the Lord search the hearts and I know the ways. Aren't you glad God knows you and still chose to save you and extend eternal life and hope in Jesus to us? We celebrate him for that. He was never a believer. He was driven by greed. He was indwelt by Satan. It was predicted by prophecy. Judas was filled with disappointment. And he was also in disagreement, apparently, with Jesus' ministry philosophy. He wants someone to serve him. She pours ointment on his feet. And Judas says that should be sold and given to the poor. He, he did not like how Jesus was orchestrating things. I, I put a little sheet up here. And here are some passages by it. If you want that, you can go back and get a picture and research it. But this shows his greediness, his satanic influence, where he, Satan influenced him first and then indwelt him. That's why you never play with the occult, by the way. The prophecy that was foretold about the betrayal, the disappointment of Jesus not establishing his earthly kingdom, Judas was thinking that he would actually be the one to be involved in rule and reign in that perhaps. And then the disagreement over the way Jesus handled the ministry. And then finally, Judas, as you know the story, went out to the chief priests and told them, I will show you who he is. I'll lead you to the place in the garden away from all the people because they tried to get Jesus on numerous occasions and when they got and tried that in a small town, that wasn't going to work very well. Because when they tried to take Jesus, the people rose up and were going to kill the leaders. And so they had to make a plot where they could get Jesus out in the night, away from the common people, and they could arrest him out there by himself. So Judas says, 30 pieces of silver and I'll take you right to the place where the man prays and nobody will be around. So they pulled out 30 pieces of silver, dropped it in Judas's hand. He says, meet me at the garden at this time. I'll kiss him on the cheek and you can have him. And you know the story, right? Judas went up. He kissed Jesus on the cheek. And Jesus' last recorded words to Judas, you know what they are? I'm going to show them to you. They're in Matthew chapter 26. So if you want to turn there, I'll let you see that in just a moment. But he greeted him with a kiss. The Roman soldiers came forward to grab a hold of Jesus. What happened? He said, who is Jesus of Nazareth? Jesus said, I am he. And what happened to all the soldiers? Boom, they fell down. Peter chops Malchus's ear off. Jesus picked Malchus's ear up, wiped the dirt off of it, stuck it on the side of his head and healed it and said, here I am, take me. Put away your swords. Because this is my time. I, I knew why I came. And so then he goes before all these phony trials. And then Judas, of course, after Jesus is betrayed, and even before he's crucified, what does he do? He goes back in remorse. As far as we know, he, he never repented. He never believed on Jesus for eternal life. And he went out and he ended his own life. This is how distraught he was. He betrayed him. Now how did Jesus treat Judas? By the way, there are some lessons in here. 
And if, if I was going to be very practical this morning, I, I would just preach the sermon very simple that said how to treat a betrayer. But notice how Jesus treated Judas. He never publicly embarrassed him, but he let him know he knew. You know, here they are in the upper room the night he's about to be betrayed, and he didn't go, uh, one of you twelve is going to betray me, Judas, you low-down bum. You've walked with me for three years, and I've paid your way, and I've helped you, and I've empowered you, you sorry rascal. Jesus never did that. Instead, he let him take it. He leaned over to him and he said, what you're going to do, do quick. You know, when Jesus said, pray for your enemies and those who despitefully use you, he lived it, by the way. He lived it. He also offered him graciously. I should have put the, the descriptor there, graciously. He graciously offered him several opportunities to believe and turn. By pointing out some were not believers, you know, Jesus told him the truth, one of you is a devil. You know, most of the time we don't like it when people are direct and let, let us know that they've got our number. But Jesus let Judas know, I've got your number. You are a non-believer. You're a follower. You're faking it, man. You're faking it. You're here for the money. You're here because you got the bag and because you can skim off the top and you think I don't know. You're a thief. And you only care about yourself. So he pointed out that he was not a believer. When they were at dinner with Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, Jesus gave Judas an opportunity. At the Passover meal on that night, when he handed him the bread, you know, Judas could have said, Lord, I can't do this to you. I mean, I've been asked to betray you. I can't do this. He also had a chance in the garden. And I want you to turn, Matthew chapter 26, you're there, and you've already read it like three times, haven't you? Uh, verse I'm not even there. Matthew chapter 26, verse 50. Jesus says to him, when Judas comes, what does he say? What's the first word? Y'all read it out loud with me. Friend. Friend. Now I want you to know, I looked this word in the original language. You want to know what it means? Companion. Comrade. Friend. Let me translate here. Judas, the one who's walked with me for three years and I've been utterly gracious to you, my friend, my companion, my comrade, the one who stood beside me, do what you came to do. You know, when you start thinking about sermons, by the way, and I do, I think about every sermon I preach, first to myself, I begin to look at my own life and say, could I do this? You ever been betrayed, by the way? I mean, you ever had somebody really just do you in, steal from you, lie, and then turn around and walk you to your death? Oh, 
that's so hard. There's, there's nothing that hits any harder. And at the end of his life, he looks at him and says, Friend, do what you came to do. What a gentleman our Savior is. He's a gentleman. He doesn't speak out both sides of his mouth either. And, and he knew that even though Judas was his enemy, are you ready for this? He could still be kind. We have a lot to learn as Christians, don't we? Somehow or another, we, we think that when somebody does us wrong, we have a right just to absolutely let them have a piece of it. But when you study his life, he was so in control that he was able to treat even defectors and people against him with compassion. Okay, I'm going to move on. So this goes to teach us that a disloyal person could be a productive team member, they could be a close friend, and but by the grace of God, it could be you. You know, never have too high of an estimate of yourself, by the way. We can all be disloyal. We should strive not to be, but we can. And so what does Paul write? Let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. So be cautious. What are some causes for disloyalty? I'm just going to run down through this. Position could cause some people to be disloyal. Some people covet a following. And so in order to do that, they'll cut somebody else. You ever seen that? Power, which goes somewhat with position, but it's an inordinate need to be in control. Some people will betray others for power. Prestige, they just love the praise of people. They'll do anything for it. Even step on you. Some people do it for a cause. They are genuinely seek what, key word here, what they believe is correcting a wrong or saving their self or others. Some people do it because of values. In other words, every person is driven by a, a priority system in their life. The problem is, is the, the most important priority in most lives is self. Self, not others. And then finally, demonic influence and control. And we know that Satan put it in the heart of Judas and he influenced him and even indwelt and entered him. So those are some causes. Now how do you work through the pain of disloyalty? I promised I would do this. If you walked into a counselor and they were sitting down, they would ask you, could you please share your story with me? And you would share your story of hurt and betrayal. And then they would begin to ask you perhaps a question like this. Can you close your eyes and imagine somewhere on your being what this damage looks like? And some people, I read one case study where one person said they felt when they were betrayed that it was like a stab in their back. They didn't see it coming and it was like a knife going right through their back. Another person described it as a, a, a flaming arrow 
that was being shot from a distance and hit them right square in the heart. And so there you have two imageries, a stab in the back and an arrow to the heart. So the counselor would say, picture now what that looks like after it hits you. And this one person began to explain that this burning, flaming arrow with a sharp broadhead had pierced right down into the depths of their soul and that they could look down into their, into their being and this betrayal had affected everything in them from their head to their feet. They, they saw this gash, they saw the wound, they saw the burn, and they were just dismayed by what they saw. And the counselor began to ask more. And then, then the person, another person by the way, was describing this. And they could not describe what the gash looked like. They only described what the person holding the knife or shooting the arrow looked like. And the counselor stopped them and said, wait. You are dealing with the perpetrator. I'm not asking you to think about that person right now. I'm asking you to think about what that did to you and what it looks like in you. You can't control them. This is about you. And so the person went on to explain, I can't look at my hurt without seeing the person who hurt me. And the counselor then shared with the person, then you, you, what you're doing is you're putting a protective layer around your heart and you're not willing to deal with the real cause of your hurt. The only thing you're willing to deal with is the betrayer. You cannot help and heal yourself and allow God to free you until you are able to distance and disassociate the person from the hurt and the feeling you have. And so now perhaps the person has to work through like peeling an onion one layer at a time until they can finally look at their own wound. And now what the counselor would say after you got to that point, and that may take who knows how long, right? And by the way, some people can never do that. They can never disassociate the feeling of their pain with the person that caused it. And that is an impediment to healing, by the way. So now what the counselor would say is, now picture your Savior, your Savior, the one who loves you, picture him as the great physician who comes to you and says, I know exactly what betrayal feels like personally. And they said, imagine him healing your greatest and deepest wound. Yes, it has a scar. Yes, you can still see it. But sit back and prayerfully allow him to heal your wound. And they said, you know, sometimes this may take some process. You have to be alone by yourself. You have to be, you know, in, in prayer, searching and asking God to heal you. And they said, after you can have that image in your mind of him healing this scar internally first, working its way all the way out to the skin, maybe even putting a new skin graft on it, and now you're healed and you're whole because Jesus did that for you, now the counselor would ask you to go one step further. And they would say this. You ready for this? Release the person who hurt you. 
Because the longer you hold on to them, the bigger your chain gets. Cut it. You can't change them, and getting even is not going to help. Getting angry is not going to help. Cut the chain. And this is what you say, Lord Jesus, I entrust this person to you. They hurt me, you healed me, and they are now in your hands. Do with them whatever you wish. You know, God the Father gave Jesus a Judas. And sometimes God allows them into our life. And if we are to be like our Savior, sometimes, you ever heard the term, you have to take one for the team? You know, your life is a testimony. And how you act and respond in times of trial and hurt shows people what your God is like. Not easy, impossible. But with God, all things are possible. He can heal us. And now I want to ask you a piercing question. Are we a Judas? Are, are you a Judas? What, what does that mean? What do I mean by that? I don't, I don't ever like to make people doubt their salvation. I think Christians struggle with that enough as it is. But I do want to ask this question. Has there ever been a time in your life when you realized yourself that you did not possess the gift of eternal life from God the Father through Jesus? Has there ever been a time when you realize, I don't have eternal life through Jesus? I, I don't have it. And if there's ever been a time where you realize that your sin has separated you from God, you do not have eternal life, you have eternal death, and the only way you can have eternal life is by believing on Jesus and what he did on the cross to pay the penalty of your sin and receive the gift that he gave you, the gift of eternal life, believe on him. It's not by works of righteousness which you have done, but it's according to his mercy that he saves us by the washing of water of regeneration and the giving of the Spirit and the promise of eternal life. Has there ever been a time when you have believed that, trusted on him? If there has been, then you need to lock that down in your mind and in your history. Can I tell you an honest confession? I struggled with my salvation up into my late 20s. A very wise Sunday school teacher came to me one time and made this statement. He said, young man, open your Bible right there and write today's date and say, today, on such and such date, I have put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ for eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. He said, write that in your Bible. I said, okay, I was writing it down, word for word, what he said. He said, now you listen to me. The next time that you doubt, you open your Bible. And he made me write a Bible verse to the John 5, 24, I think it was. Verily, verily, who believes on me uh, has eternal life and has passed over uh, from death unto life. He said, you read that sentence and you read that verse and you tell God, 
Lord, I'm trusting your word, not my feelings, for my eternal life. I don't feel it right now, but I don't have to. Because I put more stock in your word than I do my feelings. He said, you pray that, you close your Bible, and go on. He said, and if a doubt comes back, you go back to it again, and you do it again. He said, God never fails in his word. I'm going to tell you something, that's pretty good advice. But do you know it is possible for someone to grow up in a Christian home, to be read the Bible as a child, to be drugged to church every Sunday, Sunday school, Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night, every time the, the doors open, mom and dad make them bow their hands and pray together, they grow up into a young adult or an adult. It's possible that they don't believe And you know, I have met many people throughout my ministry who have been just like that. They've lived their whole life and never really got the gospel. Never really understood what it was. They believed it was about them and their works and what they do and what kind of person they are. And as a result, what happens? They don't have eternal life. What do we do? We pray for people like that. So I plead with you, make sure that there's been a moment and a, a time when you've trusted Christ as your Savior. If you haven't done that, make it right now. Father, thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for this story that's included here for our learning and admonition. I pray, Father, if anyone's here today that doesn't know Christ as Savior, that they would believe on him for eternal life and receive that free gift. So open their hearts and do the work that only you can do. We thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. By the way, if you struggle, or you have doubts or questions, you want to talk, please, please come and see me. I'm here for you. I want to talk with you and help you so you can know for sure that you have eternal life.